Matthew chapter 28, just two verses, beginning in verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. In Matthew's gospel account, the last words spoken by Jesus before he died were, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know from John's account that the last words spoken by Jesus on the cross were, it is finished. From the moment these anguished words were spoken, the disciples and the followers of Jesus have not been sure what to do. I mean, they don't really know what to do. And depending on who they are, they sort of take different approaches. It seems as though all of their hopes and dreams of a new kingdom are not to be. At the death of Jesus, they think for all the things that they had thought Jesus had been teaching them, for all the hopes they had built on this kingdom that he had been promising, seemed to be lost and now done. It, seems, it seemed at the moment of the cross and the death of Jesus that their hopes placed in Jesus would not be realized. And it seems like everything is broken and all is lost. I don't know if you've ever been there. I don't know if you've ever been in a moment where you feel like everything is broken, all is lost. But it's a dark moment. In moments like this, some retreat to seclusion. You go home, you pull the shades, put your phone on do not disturb, you quit answering it, you don't want to read the text. You don't even want to be on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You just want to be separated, seclusion. Other folks respond to moments like this by getting busy. So they get busy with the logistical tasks that have to be done in in that sense, if you can just stay busy, it'll keep your mind off the thing that is breaking your heart. We see both in this moment. The disciples scatter. They go into seclusion. You can't find them. There's a man by the name of Joseph. He's from Arimathea. He tends toward the busy side. He goes to Pilate. He asks Pilate for permission to receive the body of Jesus, the corpse of Jesus. He's given permission. They take the corpse of Jesus off the the cross. This is the, the, the Sabbath day is approaching. The hour is coming when work is not to be done. And so they hurriedly take the corpse of Jesus down. They wrap his body in linen and they place him in Joseph's own tomb. He had purchased and had a a tomb which was basically a a carving out of stone of the side of a rock and it was his tomb. It had never been used and he placed the body of Jesus in the grave. He put a stone in front of it to keep folks out and, and left to celebrate the Sabbath. You can imagine the next day, which would have been the Sabbath, which would have been Saturday, had to be a long, long day. It was the Sabbath according to the law 
of God. And the law of God demanded that no work could be done on the Sabbath, not even the work of caring and preparing for a dead body. It goes way back. In the beginning, very beginning, when the Bible tells us the account of Genesis, it says that God labored for six days and on the seventh he rested. And he declared and he made that day holy. When God gave the law, he instituted that. He, he codified that and he said, you shall labor six days, but on the seventh day it is the Sabbath day unto the Lord and you shall rest. And so that law stood. And so all of the disciples of Jesus and all the followers of Jesus, they get the body in the grave as quick as they can. And then all day Saturday, nothing. They wait. Technically, they rested, but I think it was an uneasy resting. So at the first light on Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, make their way to the tomb. They're going to do a rather unpleasant task. They probably didn't have time to get it done before getting the corpse of Jesus in the grave, but they were going to anoint his body. That means they were going to put really strong spices all around the body, and that the intention of that was to compete against the stench of rot so as to cover up the decaying smell of a dead body. At first light, they go. But when they get there, what they expect to find is not what they find. Matthew tells us that the stone is rolled away. There is an angel sitting on it. And he announces to these two women named Mary that Jesus has risen from the grave. The soldiers are there. Matthew tells us that they are stunned, that they are like men frozen or men dead. They are so overwhelmed by what they have witnessed and seen, those men cannot move. The angel tells them to go and tell the disciples and that Jesus will meet the disciples in Galilee. And they go. These two women make their way. But on their way, they're greeted. In fact, I love the simplicity of it. In verse 9, it says, and behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. I mean, the, the text that is translated there literally means Jesus said, hello. <laughs> hello. And in this meeting, and in this greeting, everything for the rest of eternity is changed because he lives. For the next few moments, I, I want us to consider some things that happen because he lives, specifically from these two verses. That because he lives, it demands our worship. That because he lives, it calms all of our fear. And because he lives, it compels that we testify, that we witness that he indeed, indeed has risen from the grave. Let's begin with worship. Because Jesus lives, it compels our worship. Now, I want to make something very, very clear. 
When I use the word worship, and particularly when I couple it with the word compels, what I mean by that is I am talking about a natural response, not an external demand. I'm talking about a natural response, not an external demand. One of the most common efforts among liberal theologians, it has been happening since the day that Jesus rose from the grave and it continues to this moment. One of the most common efforts amongst liberal theologians and secularists alike is to discredit the bodily death and bodily resurrection of Jesus. And typically, there are two general approaches to to denying the resurrection. The first is to deny the, the historicity of the resurrection. In other words, it didn't really happen. It didn't really happen. In fact, if you want to notice in, the, in, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 13, if you'll just look a little bit further down in your, in your pages of Scripture, it began almost immediately as the chief priest paid off the guards to say, listen, you tell people that somebody stole his body and that he hasn't really risen from the grave. You can either deny the, the reality of it, the, 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 um, of, of the resurrection, or you can deny the, the physical reality of the resurrection. Now, this is a little more dangerous, it's a little more subtle, but it's just as destructive. You can find those today that says, well, yes, we consider the resurrection, but it's spiritual, it's allegorical, it's symbolic that Jesus has risen in our hearts. But at the core of what they're saying is that he has not physically risen from the dead. The testimony of Scripture to the resurrection, dear friends, is not theoretical, it's not emotional, it's not allegorical, and it's certainly not mythical. The testimony of Scripture is the bodily resurrection of Jesus. So notice in the Scripture, Matthew's first testimony to the bodily resurrection of Jesus is found in verse 9. Jesus greeted these two women, and he gave a simple greeting. Hello, from South Georgia, how y'all doing? And these women do not say, well, isn't this a wonderful experience in our hearts? These two women don't go, you know, this is really changing my perspective on how I'm seeing things. No, they have a natural response to Jesus greeting them. You know what they do? They do two things. They grab hold of his feet and they begin to worship him. The presence of Jesus resurrected requires, it compels two things. They wanted to hold on to Jesus physically, dear friends. That's why Matthew makes clear they physically grab hold of his ankles. They're not allegorically holding on. They're not mythically holding on. They're not holding on in their heart and mind, but not in reality. No, they've got their fingers tightly gripped around the feet of Jesus. And they're worshiping him. I think these two things are inseparably connected Because to be in the presence of the resurrected Jesus produces a natural response of worship. I really don't think in this moment these women are all that concerned with how they look. I don't think in this moment they're really all that concerned with where they needed to be. You remember they were on their way to tell the disciples. The disciples can wait. They're in the presence of Jesus. I don't think at this moment they're concerned about other things in their day they need to get done. Let breakfast wait. Let the laundry stay piled up. I'm in the presence of Jesus. The testimony of Scripture 
it's pretty clear that all who are in the who come into the presence of the resurrected Jesus they worship not out of obligation but rather out of a natural response to Jesus dear friends because he lives we fall at his feet and we worship him you see because Scripture is declaring here that there is a, a, a reality, an inseparable reality, that to know Jesus is to worship Jesus. If you remove chapter 28 from the Gospel of Matthew, the whole testimony of his gospel becomes powerless. And that's true for Mark chapter 16 and Luke chapter 24 and John chapter 20. If you take the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus, none of the gospel matters then. Oh, he's got some good teaching, but his good teaching has power because he was buried in the grave and he rose again three days later. He talks about the kingdom of heaven coming. It only has power and hope because he was buried in the grave and he rose again three days later. He declares that our, our sin can be forgiven through his blood and that it only has power and hope because he died on the cross, buried in the grave, and rose three days later. But it goes further than that. If you remove the testimony of the resurrection from the Gospels, the hope and the power of the entire testimony of Scripture from Genesis all the way to the Amen of Revelation is rendered worthless and powerless. You can understand then why it is so important to those who hate the Gospel to deny with all they can the reality of the resurrected Jesus. The entirety of Scripture's hope rests on this phrase, He lives. The authenticity of the ministry of Jesus rests on that simple phrase, He lives. Every last promise of Scripture is dependent upon that precious phrase, He lives lives all day long on the Sabbath these women and all the disciples must have wondered if there was any hope at all but in this moment with their hands tightly gripped around the feet of Jesus these women know they know that there is hope in the promise of God they know that there is forgiveness of sins. They know that there is hope of eternal life. They know that the kingdom of God has been established. And their response to all of this is to worship Jesus. Dear friends, to know Jesus is to worship him. There is no way for you to be in the presence of the living Lord and not worship at his feet. No one who has beheld the resurrected Jesus who was crucified for our sins and risen from the grave can refrain from worship. So often we connect worship with some demand, with some obligation. You ought to come. You should come. You should be here and all those sort of things. But dear friends, hear me very carefully. Those who have been in the presence of the living Jesus worship because he lives we worship at his feet. But there's something else here. When Jesus greets them, the very first thing he says to them after hello 
is do not be afraid. You see, because he lives, all fear is gone. He calms all fear. Now, there's a lot of reasons why they may have been afraid. They're pretty overwhelmed in this moment. But, but I, I think there are some things here that we can say beyond just being astonished. And that is first that the resurrection dispels the fear of rejection. Certainly, there is an element to this moment that would be overwhelming to them and could cause fear, but I think there is something greater in this command, and that is that, that part of the command, the condemnation of sin, is to be rejected by God. Listen to me carefully. Up until this moment, everyone who had sinned against the living God was by definition rejected by God. Sin separates you from God. Sin causes you to be out of fellowship with God. And sin causes you to be rejected by God. The work of Jesus completed on the cross was the work of atonement. That the cost of sin was paid. That the demands of the law were satisfied. That the stain of sin was completely removed. When Jesus on the cross declared those three powerful words, it is finished, he was declaring that the work of redemption was done. And through the work of the cross, sinners were made righteous and therefore acceptable to God. Sinful man is rightfully rejected by holy God. Sinners redeemed by the blood of Jesus, though, are welcomed into the presence of God as beloved children. We experience this sense of fear of rejection in a host of levels and a host of places, some significant, some not so significant. If you've ever accidentally gone to the wrong house and that person answers the door and you realize you're in the wrong house. There's this tinge of rejection. You're not supposed to be there. If you've ever been spurned by a romantic interest, that'll break your heart. That heartbreak comes from a sense of being rejected. And there's much more brutal realities of People who ought to protect you and love you, spurning you, rejecting you, and the wounds and the destruction that that causes. But at the very heart of that sense of rejection is always at its core this question of, are you worthy? Are you acceptable? Are you welcomed? And the testimony of Scripture is that because of sin from Genesis 3 until this moment, because of sin, you are not welcomed into the holy presence of God. You may remember that up until the death of Jesus, there was a physical barrier, a veil, that separated the holy of holies from everything else. And most people weren't even allowed to get into the chamber that separate. That, in fact, most people weren't even allowed to get into the chamber that entered into the chamber that entered into the chamber that entered into the place where the, where the veil was that separated it from the holy chamber where the priest went, reminding us constantly that because of our sin, we were not able to come into the presence of God. But dear friends, 
because he lives, more specifically because he died for our sins, was put in the grave, and rose again, you are welcomed as a child of the living God. Oh, we don't have time for this, but there's something spectacular that happens in this moment. You may remember scapegoats from the Old Testament. The, 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 the high priest would lay their hands upon the goat and, and symbolically put all the sins of the people upon the goat and then put it into the wilderness. But there's something greater that happens with Jesus. Yes, all of our sin were, were, was placed on him. The iniquity of us was, was what he bore. But the reality is not only was our sin put on him, but his righteousness was put on us. Therefore, we're welcomed as children of God, accepted by God. That's why we say the resurrection dispels the fear of rejection, and it dispels the fear of danger. There is another source of fear, and that is the wrath of God. One of the sad realities of our modern time is the lack of understanding of guilt and forgiveness. Many today are doing all they can to eradicate any vestige of guilt or shame and any reference to sin. You, you, you'll see this in, the, in just the common conversation that's happening in the public today. And there, there, there is a swift and intense backlash if you publicly say any behavior, any action is wrong. Because the the world today is passionately trying to expunge from our conversation and our minds and our lives any sense of right and wrong, just and unjust, but specifically sin, guilt, and shame. But for all the efforts of the world to expunge sin from the conscience of men and women, we cannot escape the knowledge of our own guilt. I believe by the created order of God, every man and every woman is aware of our own sin. In a world that attempts to deny sin and guilt also forfeits any understanding of repentance and forgiveness. One of the immutable testimonies to God is the desire that is in all of us for justice. And that desire for justice that's in all of us is a testimony that there is one who is just. And there is one who has declared what is just. You might not believe me on this, but I'm telling you, if you're ever wronged, there's something that wells up inside of you. That's not fair. And that desire for fairness, that desire for justice doesn't come from some collective agreement that all people have gathered together and said, we're going to desire. No, that comes from the created order of God that we desire what is right and good and true. This desire for justice points to the truth that there is a judge who has declared what is right and wrong and will execute his judge justice. Now, listen to me carefully. In sin, we have a righteous fear of God's judgment and wrath. Hear me. If you are not covered by the blood of Jesus today, you've not confessed Jesus as your Lord and been forgiven of your sins, you should have. You must have a righteous, true fear of God's wrath. 
Because if you die today and step into eternity, you will stand under the full judgment of your sin and God's holy wrath will be poured out on you. And I don't know what danger you fear, but that's more danger than anything you could imagine. But in the cross, listen to me, in the cross of Jesus, the wrath of God is satisfied. In the cross of Jesus, the wrath of God was poured out, not on you and on me, but on Jesus, on account of you and me. And with the resurrection, the fear of death, the fear of hell, the fear of God's wrath are no more for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Somebody say amen. One other thing. And that is that when you behold the resurrection of Jesus, it compels a witness. Two things here. Now, Jesus gives a command. In verse 10, he says, do not be afraid. And then he says, go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. Two things here. First is go and tell. Jesus commands these two women to go and tell the disciples that Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, the natural response of, of to beholding Jesus goes in two directions. The first is to worship God. We see that, taking hold of his feet, worshiping. The second is a, is a, is a desire to make it known, to tell other people that he has risen. This is eternity-changing news, and this news cannot remain silent. Listen to me carefully, friends. We don't preach Jesus Sunday in and Sunday out simply because we want to just grow a larger congregation. We don't preach Jesus because we just, um, we just want to advance ourselves amongst men. No, we preach Jesus because we have come to know that he indeed has risen and we want every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, everywhere to hear and know and believe that he lives. Those who have known the resurrected Jesus preach Jesus because we cannot help but do it. He died for our sins. He was buried in the grave, but he is risen from the grave and lives today. Because he lives, we preach Jesus. And because he lives, Jesus wants you and me to see and know. I think there is an element of greater grace found in this command of Jesus telling these women to go and tell the disciples to come and meet him in Galilee. Jesus wanted to be with his disciples. All the gospel accounts testify to him coming and being amongst his disciples. In verse 10, Jesus says, and there they shall see me. Jesus wanted his followers to see and to know him. Luke tells us that Jesus appeared to some of his followers, and when they, when they became frightened, fearing that he was a ghost, he said, why are you troubled, and why do, you, why, why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. John tells us that Thomas, who was not with the other disciples when they first encountered Jesus after he had risen, tells the disciples, listen, I'm not going to believe that Jesus has risen from the grave until I actually touch him. 
And when Jesus appeared, he invited Thomas to do just that. He said, reach here your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and be not unbelieving but believing. Particularly in the Gospel of John, there's this, in my mind's eye, it's like light bulbs going off. When the Marys see Jesus, they declare, Rabbi, teacher, it's you. When John sees Jesus, it says, and he believed. When the disciples see Jesus, they're, they're, they're saying to Thomas, he's alive. And when Thomas touches the side of Jesus, it's like a light bulb goes off and he declares him, my Lord and my God. Here it is, friends. I believe Jesus still wants his followers to see and know him. The call of every faithful church every Sunday, not just on Easter, but especially on Easter, is to come and know Jesus. Not as a theory, not as an idea, not as a story, but as the resurrected Jesus who lives today. Come and know, come and see Jesus resurrected. He lives, he lives, he lives today. We live in a world today of instant news and 24-hour news. It's, it's hard for those of you who grew up in that context to remember a day before that. We'll just have to tell you stories about it. But there was a day when... A 24-hour news cycle was absolutely a fascinating and new and fresh thing. And one of the things that emerged almost immediately as news channels began to broadcast all the time is there would be these, these events that had been happening since time of memorial, but, but these events like um, a little girl getting stuck in a well or some tragedy that happened and you weren't really sure the outcome of those who were the victims, whether or not they had, they had been killed or whether or not they had made it through or what. And so you would be glued to your TV, even as we are today, but even more so then because it was a, a new experience. You would be glued to your TV and you would watch everything. And at, your, at the very core of who you are, you were passionately hoping, hoping against hope that the one who was lost or stuck or whatever had survived. Oh, I hope they survive. And then you say, well, I hope they survive. I hope they were survived untouched. Or if they were hurt or damaged, you say, I hope they survive and they can heal from their wounds. Now you can, I can remember some moments watching those, those moments when um, maybe Jessica, I don't know if you remember that, comes out of, the, out of the well and we rejoiced. She survived. She is well. I want you to be very clear this morning. What makes today a glorious day, listen to me, is not that Jesus survived. What makes today a glorious day is that he lives. Survives mean that you scraped by. But Jesus didn't scrape by. He went willingly to the cross, fully died fully dead in the grave. To survive means you've made it past today, but you're still getting old. 
Life is still ticking by. There's another opportunity tomorrow to experience danger. There's another opportunity the next day to get sick. Survive just means you've made it one more day, but the Bible declares of Jesus, He lives. He lives. Such a simple phrase. But with these two words, all of eternity was changed. Because He lives, we worship. Not a relic, not an idea. We worship a living Savior, Jesus. Not to earn some reward or to placate some bad response, but because we are overwhelmed to be in the presence of the living God who has atoned for all of our sins. Because He lives, all fear is gone. For all our sin and shame has been atoned for and we have been made right before God and we are able to declare, Father, Abba, Father, and step into the presence of the living God. Because He lives, and I have beheld His glory and believe indeed that He has risen from the grave, I will give every breath of my life declaring to all who will hear, He has risen. He has risen indeed. He lives.